Hello, folks. I'm Chris Ludwig. I'm here with my co-host, Connor Boyle, and this is going to be part two of our Red October episode. And no, no, ignore the episode title. Your eyes deceive you. In fact, part one was so long, we split it into two parts, part one, part one, and part one, part two. So this is going to be part two, part one of one. We can all agree that no one is confused about this, and since we are in agreement, we can continue. Have you been stabbed today? Uh, no, I have not been stabbed today. Connor, I have been stabbed today. Oh, that's right, you were showing me... Uh, I suppose it should be said with a blunted sword. I have not been run through. But regardless, um, it hurts. You were stabbed repeatedly in the same spot. Yes, at my sparring practice for my Hema group. Your Hema group, like, what is that? Hema is historical European martial arts. It's basically like broadsword, longsword, and like fencing. Do you learn any like non-sword martial arts, like non-weapon? Oh yeah, um, we actually learn World War II combatives, and we also learn uh, ringen, which is a style of uh, medieval wrestling that is a lot more similar to sumo wrestling than you'd think. It's just basically just trying to get a person on the ground or out of a circle. It's very fun, way more fun than you can imagine. And we also have a chance to learn classic pugilism. That's cool. It's more interesting. I, I bought I bought a tennis racket over the weekend. Might start I could probably teach tennis. you how to kill with that. <laughs> I don't know. I just wanted to play tennis. You know hit the ball back and forth uh fun fact i have uh, statistically more chance to get tennis elbow doing fencing than you do doing tennis well you're a killer all right you got that hey speaking of killing i've just had it with this government uh i'm gonna grab a sailboat i'm gonna come pick you up in new mexico i don't don't worry about how hard that sounds and we're gonna sail to the capital and broadcast a message of revolution and we're going to talk about how we don't like uh the 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 current state of things hey so this is a spoiler for today's episode welcome everybody to what's the podcast again what are we doing this is is dad lit the only podcast devoted downvoted dedicated (laughs) to analyzing the works of cussler clancy and child and crichton and those like there's them. So ma- there's so many C's. Yeah. We, we started off calling it like the three C's, and I think we found like seven C's, which works because today we're sailing the seven C's. Perfect. So our last yes. two episodes focused on the book The Hunt for Red October by Tom Clancy, and we went through a pretty thorough review of the plot, talked about some of the themes. But Chris, you did some, as we like to say, some homework. You did a, uh, you're prepared to deliver a book report um about the influence for the hunt for red october and about um some of real life events that are i think that are are referenced in the book yes it's actually i found it more fascinating than reading hunt for red october and that's not a slight at hunt for red october it's interesting enough i enjoyed reading it the movie's better we've been over this but just the course of events of the true story that inspired it is fascinating so our story starts with young Valerie Sablin. I apologize if I mispronounce and definitely will mispronounce a lot of the things in this book report because Russia 
and their language is hard. Well, can you tell us actually before we get started, what is oh, the so our, primary source so our here? Sources, yeah, so our sources today, um, the book "The Last Century: The True Story That Inspired the Hunt for Red October." by gregory d young and nate braden uh i got it on kindle and read through it uh it's pretty great there's some pictures i sent you some of them in the in the drive if you want to open those up Mm -hmm. uh and then there's also a documentary you can find on youtube if anyone wants to look this up later called mutiny the true story of the red october i believe that aired on a british uh channel some time ago um Anyways, uh, uh, the, the person of interest in this story is young Valerie Sablin. His whole family came like from sailors. His, his father served valiantly in World War II. His grandfather served before that. They grew up in a, uh, like a seaside village that was like big on sailing and uh, people joining the Navy. So he went to a naval school and was called the conscience of the class. People had a lot of nice things to say about him. He had a, uh, a lot of morals. He was idealistic, probably too idealistic and a little gullible for a child. At the time... Stupid kid. Uh, yeah, you know, like every kid. So he idolized thinkers like uh, Marx and Lenin, Trotsky, uh, Tolstoy, and he was a fan of several controversial poets at the time. And he even sent a letter to Khrushchev, which nearly got him in trouble. Uh, he got brought before like people of authority at the school and questioned, but ultimately he was released and thought of as no threat. And this kind of is going to be a repeated thing throughout his life. Later, when he was at a higher school, he met a friend uh, who has, was working in the intelligence field and openly talked to him about revolutions and controversial opinions. And his friend just straight up turned him into the KGB. But the KGB also thought this agent was known for being like paranoid and kind of just disregarded his assessment and just let it go. So Wouldn't like they... twice, twice now this guy has gotten like brought up as being suspicious for his morals and yeah. then twice has just been like, ah, whatever. Well, when the KGB says you're being too suspicious, yeah, you know, right. maybe well, you are being KG- too suspicious. I was going to say, when the KGB says you're paranoid, yeah. When they say, just, just uh, this chill is out. Also, uh, this is also a time where there were two intelligence agencies, the KGB and the GRU. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are in the, the Hunt for Red October, and they part of what we talked about, if you remember, is that they're kind of competing against each other. And right. the, the GRU is the actually the undercover agent on the Red October. Yeah, yeah. so these incidents didn't seal Sablin's fate, um, but they did slow his advancement because even though he didn't get, like, put away for it or, like, too in trouble, people at the school and people in the Navy didn't like it. Uh, so it was, like, bad marks on his uh, record. He still excelled pretty quickly, and the funny thing, I don't know about funny, but he himself turned down a command offered to him. He was offered to that people really liked his gumption and really liked his uh, leadership potential. So they offered him to go to like command school and he instead thought being a political officer was more appealing. He didn't like the idea of climbing the command structures in the Navy and instead wanted to be more connected to the pulse of the country. So he went to school for that. He went to be a political officer 
and when he went to the new class and new curriculum, he was appalled that the academy censored and controlled what students were reading. He thought that they would be given a lot more freedom to check out certain things and read certain things. And when he found what like what the required reading was and what they were allowed and not allowed to to check out from the school, he got kind of like irked. That does seem rather naive for someone in the Soviet Union and also someone who aspires to be a political officer on a Soviet Navy ship to be like surprised at something like that. Like I said, he's idealistic and gullible. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the biggest problem in the story is that he was born in the wrong time. Like a lot of his ideals would later kind of not be as, as ridiculous, but um, you know, Khrushchev was kind of idealistic himself and eventually uh, Khrushchev gave way to a much more conservative leader what's his name Brezhnev I don't know how to pronounce Brezhnev that. yeah and this this kind of reflects what we've been seeing in our own country lately you we had uh, a president that was elected that was very progressive and uh, it pissed off a lot of people so then the president that gets elected after him is the extreme in the opposite direction so that's kind of what happened in russia you have someone who's trying to change things up shake things up for the better and a lot of the people that liked the way things were elected someone who would have kind of their ideals the problem is just like with who we had elected uh he was very corrupt and very self-serving he moved Russia backwards uh, and led to like a horrible stagnation that drove our our young Valerie Sablin mad. A lot of people thought that Brezhnev was inept at leading the nation, and when things had become so out of control that the army was doing stuff that their own intelligence agency wasn't aware of until the U.S. told them about it. Yeah, Sablin got kind of fed up. Parts of the Russian government were acting kind of independently and not mm-hmm. communicating with each other. Um, so there was kind of like a breakdown of things over there. So Sablin decided to do something. Sablin's plan. So you know the October Revolution? Yes. Like, yeah, yeah. So it, it originally happened in October, but then they adopted the Julian calendar. So it shifted the date of the October Revolution to November. It's not that important, but it'll be important to the story because... Valerie's plan takes place during the anniversary, which takes place in November. Okay. So Valerie was serving at the time on a battleship, kind of like a destroyer called the Stroznevoy, which means the century. Stroznevoy. You pronounced it better than me. <laughs> uh, so yeah, he was a political officer on board. He waited until this party that, like, a bunch of the fleet was called in for and everything was in at dock and he waited until much of the crew was off of the ship for the celebrations and like the ceremonies and it was basically down to just like a skeleton crew during that he tricked his commanding officer down into the chart room and locked him in just kind of like closed the door and jammed it he then brought the small remaining crew in to watch a movie he chose the battleship potemkin oh, okay yep yep when the i thought Guam you were gonna say he, was... he chose et <laughs> no no that would be too thematic and also this this was before et came out this was in i think 75 if i remember correctly 
I took horrible notes. Um, you should just fire me. <laughs> Take fine. me off the podcast. Anyways, he uh, yeah. So while they were watching Battleship Potemkin, he he told the officers and crew his plan. Uh, most of them were appalled, but didn't really do anything. The the few that were like straight up uncooperative, they tied up and locked up. One of those crewmen actually escaped and started to raise an alarm. Uh, and there was also another alarm that was sounded because when they got the ship moving, they accidentally bumped into, I, I want to say it was a submarine that was in the dock. And the people on that that ship were like, what the fuck is going on? And sounded an alarm as well. So the crew rallied and spurred him on. And they set sail for Leningrad to broadcast a message of revolution. His plan was to just get to the capital and just open broadcast so that people would hear his his thoughts and his ideas and hopefully share his philosophy and rise up and do something about the horrible state of their country. Uh, he wasn't sure that he was going to get there, though, so he started the speech on the way and just openly broadcast over the radio, hoping that civilians would pick it up. Uh, however, the broadcasts were encrypted, and because the radio operators did their job, they never like de-encrypted and passed on the transmissions so really the only people that heard the true words were the military radio operators and they didn't really do anything about it this guy kind of sucks i'll tell you yes the plan is not great like i said he's gullible should be a be a good comedy movie i imagine you could spin it that way it does seem like a comedy of errors but anyways so his full message, by the way, is available to read in the appendices of the book. So if, if, if you, it's very long. It's a huge message that he broadcast. If you're interested, anybody at home, uh, I highly recommend reading uh, The Century. It's a lot better than I'm describing it. There's a lot also available in the appendices, like all of his letters home to family, uh, multiple different like firsthand accounts. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting pictures. Uh, How long is the book? I feel like it's only like 275 pages, something oh, like that. That's not very long for like a it's not, nonfiction no, it's not, it's book. It's not very long. Yeah, it's it's good. I recommend it. His story I'm kind of going like over pretty quickly because it's not that great. Like his plan wasn't that great. And it's like most of the stuff afterwards that's really interesting. It, his, his message is too long to read here, but I urge you to go and read it if you're interested. So anyway, Brezhnev was woken in the middle of the night and... Wondered if the lofty aims of Sablin weren't like a smokescreen for a, a more nefarious plan. Uh, maybe he was planning to defect because they weren't sure where he was sailing. He was kind of sailing towards Leningrad, but he could have very easily also been closing ground to go to like uh, Norway. So he, he basically started scrambling people under the belief that he was going to defect and take this ship to, uh, to the enemy. So any either way, he wanted them stopped and silenced. So the whole Navy set out after them. Not just the Navy, though. They dispatched bombers to stop and sink the sentry. So the sentry sailed farther out into international waters, making it further unclear if they were headed to Leningrad or Sweden. This is very, just to connect the dots here, this is beginning to sound a lot more like the Hunt for Red October, where you have Correct. one rogue ship and then the rest of the Soviet Navy going after them. And, and, it's a, and, and them being very unclear about their intentions. Exactly. 
so the Air Force ended up intercepting the ship and made it very clear they were threatening them. They dropped some uh, warning shots, warning bombs, I guess, into the water. But the pilots and air crew were really hesitant and made the leaders back on the ground worried that the feelings of the revolution was spreading. So instead of letting things kind of cool down, like if, it, like if they would have continued dropping warning shots, I think most of the crew on the the century would have like given up and like i don't think they had the balls to continue with it uh unfortunately the leadership wasn't going to give them that chance and insisted that the attack be carried out immediately before anyone could get swayed to sablin's side so bombs started to fall like on the boat at that point the crew of the century decided to let the commander out of the the chart room so they went down and released the commander, and he immediately like grabbed someone's gun and rushed up to find Sablin in the in the helm room, and uh, he just shoots him right in the leg. Well, that's kind of nice. I mean, you know, yeah, he could have killed him. Cops in the United States today wouldn't even do that. <laughs> they would blast holes in the side of the of the ship and and and, and shoot the guy in the head ten times. Yeah, a cab. Uh, yeah. Soviet Russians are more reasonable than American police. So yeah, he, he gets shot in the leg and immediately crumples, and the captain, or the commander retakes control of the ship, informing immediately informing the planes, like no, stop, 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 we're back in control don't don't sink us, we'll turn around. Um, and the planes pass that on to the leadership. So they were boarded by other military men as other ships arrived, and the mutineers were all gathered up and put against the wall. Uh, I want to say it's outside the ship too, like just in the open, like oh, sun wow. and air. Uh, they told they were told they'd be shot if they even moved. So they were, I want to say they were outside for hours, just against the wall. Anyways, when they got back ashore, the KGB arrested all of the Sentry's crew, regardless of alliance or opinion. So like not just the the people that turned, but like the commander and anybody that was still loyal, because yeah. they didn't know who they didn't know who was who. So they were going to sort it out later. Uh, everyone is questioned and cut off from the outside world for up to four months. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah. No one could believe that a party man, the like the the commissar, could perpetrate such an offense. It was unheard of. So a tribunal was called before the top brass. Basically, everyone had to come up and defend their actions and answer for them. Many of the mutineers were let off with without much trouble. Like. They were discharged from the military and had, like, bad marks and stuff, but they weren't, like, harmed or anything beyond the, like, four horrible months that they had to spend in solitude. It just went on – they went on their permanent record. Yes. So they're actually uh, – many of them are in the documentary. Like, they find some of the original crew and interview them. It's really interesting, uh, especially the guy that was, like, Sablin's right-hand man. Basically, before Sablin – brought the crew in to watch the movie he found like one guy and was like hey what do you think about this and kind of told him the plan and the guy was like really hesitant but because Sablin was like the political officer he kind of just went along with what he said Sablin was also like pretty popular on the ship he he kind of befriended most of the crew unlike how the political officer in Hunt for Red October is portrayed he's kind of like a dick mm-hmm. that no one really cared for everyone loved Sablin so he it was pretty easy for him to turn people to his favor. Um, but yeah, that like the, like his like main right hand man for the mutiny um, is in the documentary and they, they question him. It's pretty interesting. Well, yeah, they were really young at the time too. Sablin 
was like our age like i told you that when we were talking last time he was our age and like everyone that he had on his side was even younger well we were i was talking yeah the, the last time we were talking about the age of uh, submariners and the average age and it's like i could be a submarine captain at my age if i you know yep yeah um so anyways um sablin and the other ringleaders quote quote uh, were sent to Moscow's La Fortefray prison. Uh, the top KGB interrogator was brought in to dig into Sablin. And though it came out he had like never considered defection, even though Brezhnev was sure of it, um, that was the cover story that they ended up going with. It was a lie, but it reduced the damage to public opinion because, according to Russia, a mutiny had not occurred. According to Russia... Uh, there was no revolution in anyone's minds. No political officer had lost faith in the party. No, this was just a lowly criminal action. One man trying to defect. Uh, it's a lot easier to brush under the rug, and it wouldn't inspire other people to do the same thing. Sablin was charged with treason, betrayal of his land, the motherland, which would normally hold a 15-year sentence. Uh, unfortunately, Brezhnev stepped in and insisted that he be shot, like, on the spot. So, uh, he was allowed to write a couple of note, uh, letters home to his family, and then he was killed by firing squad. Uh, his main conspirator was, uh, was sentenced to eight years in prison. That's, that's less than I would have guessed, considering that he was shot and killed for what he did, but... Okay. Well, it is, but what's crazy is that the sentence was called in to the courts directly, and the courts had gone along with it. They didn't. They didn't have to. It was just you know Brezhnev calling in and saying like, "Hey, do this for me." And the courts went, "Yeah, sure." What's crazy is no one knew that that was the sentence that was passed until years later. Like his family wasn't told what happened to him. They never knew where he was buried. And, like, the public was never told that that's what happened. He just kind of was disappeared. So his family had those, like, last letters that were sent to them, and then nothing. That part is kind of depressing. You think they would have, I don't know, that you could have made an example out of him. Why wouldn't you just kill him in public and be like, this is what happens, and he deserves it? You know, it's, it's. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I, I guess that could kind of for the few people that did hear his message, like confirm that the government's ruthless and like corrupt and stuff. So keep that on the hush hush and just disappear this guy. Anyways, um, for 15 years, the Russians fought to keep the mutiny a secret and fell back on their story of defection. Um, fast forward to 1981. Now, I did say 15 years, so this is 15 years until Russia actually accepts the true story. They're still they're, they're still going with the story of um, defection for a long time. But in eight, 1981, Lieutenant Greg Young, a naval postgrad studying to write his thesis on national security, sought to learn more about just like Russian unit cohesion, morale, training, and what led to their military spirit. He got his initial lead on the mystery surrounding the century from the Swedish military. Um, after the event of uh, the mutiny, Sweden had like picked up on a couple of the, like communiques between the Russian fleet, and they saw like all the movement and like the bombers called in all that, and like they were kind of suspicious of what was going on. So they did their own like 
intelligence work. Some of it got into official reports. This guy heard about those official reports, but didn't really know much more about it, other than that there was a rumor that a mutiny had occurred. So he put out an ad in Russian language magazines and and papers asking for any in, info on a mutiny aboard a ship in the 70s. And he started getting phone calls. People were calling from like pay phones and over phones with like hushed voices. And they were just telling him stuff that they had heard or that they had knew. But it was enough to really start an investigation. He was privy to some classified documents in the Naval Archives and eventually submitted his findings with his thesis called Mutiny on the Stroznovoy, a Case Study of Dissent in the Soviet Navy. That kind of went more or less unread for a while. Like, obviously, his the, the people that were dealing with his thesis read it, but like, yeah. it basically just got filed away in a, a government document section yeah. of libraries. 99% of li- people's theses or dissertations just do not get read. It's just... It- yeah, exactly. Um, so, bas- so what happened is it got filed in a government document section, but it was in a government document section all across the country. So like uh, naval libraries everywhere had this book that his thesis was in. Later, when he was stationed in the Philippines, Young uh, was contacted uh, by an insurance agent from Owings, Maryland. And uh, this insurance agent wrote for permission to inquire further about the thesis and access to any of the declassified materials. Wait a minute. An insurance agent? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Don't worry about that. So he asked for any of the like declassified documents and any of like the original source material that that young had used to write the thesis so he asked for it for his own writing and the quote is i am now working on a novel the hunt for red october posit the red october a modified typhoon class ssbn is attempting to defect to the u.s the soviets find out we find out chaos results ellipsis my version has the skipper of the Red October killing his political officer as a precondition to his defection. In brackets, I was amazed to learn that the political officer led the Stroznovoy incident. Close brackets. Regards, Thomas L. Clancy Jr. Dun dun dun. So yeah, uh, Tom Clancy got in contact with Young, and you know the rest is more or less history. He wrote the book that we reviewed the release of it was kind of a hit it, like we said it's more or less like the birth of dad lit like there weren't books like it that were written previous to that there were adventure novels and like there's definitely like dad litty type books but like the stuff that like jack reacher and all that kind of stuff is happens because clancy writes this book yeah i think i mean i think there were dad litty books prior to it but this but is not just on this level of not on this level of research and not on this level of uh like f- fact heavy yeah. thriller. there's a certain yeah. like for lack of better word like kind of nerdy quality to it where like he, he you know more so than other books i recently read i, br- I bring this guy up all the time frederick forsyth and he is hyper detailed and goes his books are kind of about like ops you know people planning ops and they're hyper detailed but not in the way that Clancy's are in some day in sometimes like mundane and also at times boring ways so yeah it is really like 
the dadlit book par excellence. Yeah, and you know we are really happy. You know our, you know us having this podcast, we're really happy that he wrote that book. However, Russia and the U.S. Navy were not happy that he wrote this book. Officials in the U.S. Navy wanted to know why anyone knew the amount of details Clancy had on the operations of submarines, naval operations, and military intelligence operations. They straight up brought Clancy in and questioned him, and they questioned Greg Young about how they got their sources. Uh, And meanwhile in Russia, now a very different place, um, a retired submarine Zampolite, Nikolai Kerchakashin? Hold on. Cherkashin? Yeah, we'll go with that. Um, anyways, this retired Zampolite started uh, his own writing career, and after bumping into Sablin's cousin one day, began looking into and writing about the incident on the century. He wrote his own essay titled Into the Fog of Battle and submitted it to a popular publication. It was ultimately pulled this and every time he tried elsewhere to get it published, and he was visited by the KGB at his house and politely, put this in uh, quotation marks, politely asked to stop by the KGB. Authorities worked to keep his work from being released. However, several unofficial copies had been made at the um, publishers before it was pulled, like mock-ups basically, like here's how the book's going to look. And those made it out and were circulated in underground circles. Cherkashian was told that the publication of his essay might embolden people and try to make the fiction of the story of the Red October come true, but put the nation of Russia at risk from its own nuclear arsenal if there were another incident of the mutiny like Sablins. So Russia was a more relaxed place. It was still just as paranoid as it used to be. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So it wasn't until February of 1990 in response to an article about the upcoming film adaptation of Clancy's novel that finally Russia decided to set the record straight and go public about what had truly happened, more or less. I I guess, like, at that point they were like, hey, people are going to see this movie and it's going to start, like, a rumor mill and we think that the rumor mill might be more dangerous than the truth at this point so let's just tell the truth so they declassified a lot of it that's kind of when the um family found out kind of what had truly happened really around the same time that the because the movie was coming out that's interesting yeah wow so in 1998 after numerous appeals the military collegium of the supreme court of the russian federation what a long name they granted valerie sablin a partial rehabilitation in effect they removed the phrase traitor to the motherland from their convictions and uh the charge of abuse of authority remained so that lessened him like in after his death kind of lessened his legacy uh he wasn't held as much of a villain by history the admission by the Russian government that Sablin was no longer a traitor to the motherland meant that his wife uh, could be officially classified as a victim of political persecution, and that uh, entailed her to a small stipend. Uh, the, this, the, victim, the victim of political persecution stipend. 
Sounds like yeah, a scholarship yeah. you get, you know? Like, Hey, I mean, any little bit helps saying, hey, sorry we secretly murdered your husband and uh, made your kids cry, whatever, here's some money. Yeah. <laughs> Please don't become a, a mutineer just like him. So... The truth of the Stravnoi mutiny touched many Russians. When journalist Andrei Medinov published his book on the mutiny, Straight on a Course for Death, he included several of the letters he had received while researching the subject, some from veterans or officers still on active duty. One, posthumously addressed to Sablin, said, Forgive us, Valerie, for only now realizing the difference between truth and lies hypocrisy and reality words and action forgive us for being too thick-headed to see the guilt of our leaders and mentors it's true that we all conspired to hide our sins in exchange for rubles ranks and promotions continuing business as usual forgive us this as well in the school of democracy we are only in the first grade and as we all know in every school there are those who excel and those who come in second Strasnovoy should be a badge of honor with a picture of Valerie Sabrin in the center of it. I thought that was a, a really good passage. So um, another, uh, I have another one here. Quote, Sablin realized something much earlier than the rest of us did, that our system was created for only the party leadership and government elite, which had nothing in common with the people. For this elite, the people were only a front in whose name they claimed to be serving. I want to help and I'm not alone. So I thought those kind of poignant for maybe modern times. Uh, to, to wrap things up, two things kind of really jumped out at me while I was finalizing my notes. The first is a quote from the book near its own conclusion, and the second is a quote Sablin wrote down from one of his favorite writers, Alexander Bloch. Uh, and I think they are the perfect pair to kind of end my notes on okay so from from our main source the last century quote valerie sablin exercised his free will to take a path that his countrymen would follow a decade later like any good leader he was ahead of his time like any good martyr he died before it and then from the writings of alexander block quote so many things in life cry out to be done don't think about what can't be done, but what should be done, even though it may not be done now or for a long time. This is what gives life meaning. That's kind of very uh, thoughtful. Yeah, because uh, 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 like I said, if you read Zablin's like manifesto uh, that he tried to broadcast, he had a lot of very valid points, and he was very ahead of his time with his thinking. But uh, he went about it in a very foolish way and almost got a bunch of people killed. Did get himself killed and ostracized his family. So pretty, pretty valiant young man. Uh, he just made a lot of mistakes. He does not seem as thoughtful in his planning as Marco Ramius. Marco Ramius is sort of a genius in that he's and kind Marco of considered Ramius... everything. Well, Marco Ramius has the benefit of a lifetime career in the Navy, commanding many different vessels and like playing out war games and operations and things that so he could strategize and he knew how people worked. He knew the right officers to get on his side. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and he planned that out ahead of time with those officers. Whereas yeah. uh, Valerie Sablin did it by the seat of his pants. He just made a decision one day, didn't really plan it out ahead of time, just grabbed a random kid and said, hey, do you want to join me in this? I need a person to to say yes when I bring this up to the crew so that I'm not the only one uh, you know, bringing this up. I need a yes man. And the two of them just grabbed people at that moment to their cause and led them off into danger. You know, none of it was planned out ahead of time. Well, Except for, I guess, his, his note that he read. Well, I think what an interesting connection between this and the hunt for Red October is that when this happened, and like in the hunt for Red October, the the Soviet response was one of like, we can't let anyone know this happened. Like we, it is it is um, detrimental to our image, to our reputation, if the world finds out people are doing things like this in the Soviet Union with Soviet ships. So yep. that's an interesting, like, strong connection between the true story and the book. That that you know. The, the panicked response of the Soviet Navy. They sent all of their ships out there. Yeah, they scrambled the ships and they scrambled their air force. Uh, it's kind of crazy. Oh, the only like the only difference is you can see a ship. Like, you know where it is at all times. Uh, and they're broadcasting, so you can kind of, like, find them pretty easily. Which, again, flaw in his plan. In, in the adaptation, you know, it makes much more sense for it to be not only a submarine, but a silent running submarine that no one can find Mm, high value target. Well, it's much, it's, it's much scarier and it allows the, the Russian protagonist to carry out his plan. If it was just a ship on the open sea, it would have been stopped and sunk immediately. Yeah. I think that makes me think a little bit more about that element. Yes. Of course. Like it helps. It's like a stealth bomber. It's like, they're going to get away with it. But I, I also kind of wonder if, because it's a piece of experimental submarine technology, is there the sense in the book of, of Marco Ramius where it's like the Americans will definitely want to help and take me in and like they're gonna they're going they're going to assist greatly because they really want this. Like is that part of that does that factor into his decision making as well? Like the certainty I think it absolutely I think it absolutely does. Yeah. I don't know about the certainty because there, there's, I think, some some hesitance on how they're going to react when he gets to the U.S., but uh, it certainly helps that he's bringing them an asset. Yeah, and what would have happened if Jack Ryan wasn't there to make the argument? That's kind of like, I think, an interesting thing to consider because Jack Ryan somewhat sees eye to eye with Mark Aramius and is, be, is able to kind of function as his like, proxy within the CIA where he's like, I know what this guy's doing. I know what he's thinking in the movie. It's much more like they're much more synced up. Like in the book, it's well, a little I was, more. I was to say in the, in the movie, it's even more important that he's involved because no one is on like the side of Ramius until Jack Ryan uh, brings up at the like board meeting, what he thinks is going on in the books. A couple people kind of have that thought of that. That might be yeah. what's going on. But Jack Ryan is the one that like, drives it home mm-hmm. so, yeah. yeah i don't know it's interesting i i still like the way the movie handles it better but it would have never happened without the book deadlit will be right back after a word from our sponsor
this deer was alive, and this coyote was alive, and this pheasant was alive. Nope, they're not. They're dead. They've been taxidermized by Chuck Testa. Ojai Valley Taxiderm. I specialize in the most lifelike dead animals anywhere. Period. Look at that antelope driving a car. No, it's just Chuck Testa. Oh no, there's a bear in my bed. No, Chuck Testa. Hold on a second. There's a leopard feeding on an impala out on my deck. No, it's just Chuck Testa with another realistic mount. Ship to me from anywhere. Call Chuck Testa for the most lifelike dead animals around, period. Did that fino just order a drink? No, Chuck Testa does not taxidermize pet. And now, back to our show. Well, this kind of reminds me a little bit of something I was talking to you about before we got started, which is this um, this op, this CIA CIA operation called Project Azorian. And um, yeah, you mentioned that. What what is that? So there's been a few books published about this back in the like early like 2010 ish. I went to a talk. Um, and he was an engineer um, involved in this project. And basically what happened is in 1968, a Soviet submarine sank in the Pacific Ocean about like 1,600 miles off the coast of Hawaii, uh, the Hawaiian Islands. The way they found out is that the U.S. found out is that there were all these Soviet ships rushing to that part of the Pacific. So they're like, I, something sank. They're looking for one of their ships that sank. And, and that that also that also sounds like Hunt for Red October for sure yeah when the when um what is his name Pelt U.S. Secretary of mm-hmm. of State or the, whatever whatever the the U.S. politician in the book goes to talk to the Russian ambassador and is like hey so all your ships are kind of like doing a thing what's going on yeah and they're like oh yeah we're doing a, a salvage operation for a, a lost submarine. Oh, do you want help? It's embarrassing, but we've lost a submarine. Yeah, they're they're not yeah. they're not good poker players. They they show their hand too easily. But um, so this ship, uh, the Americans were like, listen, this looks like they're trying to find a ship, and using it, their own technology, they were able to locate this sunken Soviet submarine K one twenty nine. I don't remember how it sank, but it sank, and. The Soviets had left by then because they're like, we're never going to find this thing. Okay, that's a shame. You know, uh, we would have liked to have recovered it. But the Americans are like, okay, Soviets are gone. We found it. They don't know we found it. Let's get it. So Project Azorian is this project to collect this Soviet submarine off the floor of the Pacific Ocean, which is an engineering feat. And uh, this engineer, I... I, uh, he, I don't think he wrote the book. I think he was just like kind of interviewed for the book, but he was giving the talk. Described like their different designs they used and the different um, technology they built to basically like lower a, a sort of collection rig uh, to the bottom of the ocean and like scoop up the remains of the submarine. And like a claw game. Kind of, yeah. Um, but the thing is, is that, and this I think is like the most interesting part of the story is, is they're like, we can't let the Soviets know we're doing this. 
because whatever information we find on there, any cryptographic technology, any nuclear technology, any Soviet, you know, documents, we don't want them to know that we have that. So we need to be very secret about this. This is a CIA operation. So they, they build this big op, this big like farce. And what they do is they design this collection device that that lowers off the bottom of a ship. And they they research like, okay, what kind of ships are going to be in that part of the Pacific Ocean? Because that's... You're kidding me. You're kidding me. You're kidding me. Are you saying that it's a cruise ship? No, no, no. They're, they okay. There's like, they did like manganese, like they, they mined for manganese out there. So it was like a like a cargo ship? They kind made? of like a work cargo ship. But what they did is they basically okay. hollowed out the bottom of it and installed all this equipment on the bottom of it like it, it, that you could not see. It was all below the waterline. But and you're telling me this wasn't made into a Clive Cussler book? I know, right? But this sounds right up his alley. I'm gonna look. I'm gonna look up if any of his books were inspired by this. I feel like he had to have touched this. But what happened? Um, a, a lot of what this engineer was telling us was uh, uh, they talked. He talked about like testing out the umbilical line on the um, extraction device, and how he he told a really good story about how there was a storm that just came in, and they were afraid that they were gonna lose the uh, collection device, and all. it was just you know he there was some tension to it. But another interesting thing about this is, so they have this manganese mining ship that's actually a uh, recovery ship. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to put someone's name on it to give it more more cover. You know, like this is actually in the Frederick Forsyth novel I've read, like there's a mercenary operation and they're creating all these companies, like they're opening LLCs. Yeah, shell, co- shell, shell, yeah, shell companies. They get, they get Howard Hughes to put his name on the boat as like Hughes mining. Uh, Really? Yes. And um, they were able to collect like part of the ship and get some like pretty high value intelligence from it. And I think they collected it in like 1974. So it was like six years after the ship had sunk. It took that long for them to do this. That's around the same time that the stuff with Sablin was going on. That's interesting. Interesting. Well, um, so they, successfully did this operation um developed this incredible technology that could get lower to the the sea bottom and collect and like scoop up a submarine at least part of it and there was rumors years after that this had happened you know the media caught wind of it and it wasn't until like it was kind of a prolonged uh um revelation like of this information and I think by like the 2000s, they had admitted they'd done it because that by that time, the information that they'd collected was probably irrelevant and useless. But um, the book that this guy was talking about, I believe it was called Red November. Speaking to your talk of like You're Red kidding. Red November. Um, I thought it was a really interesting story just because of all the planning that went into this. You know, like that's kind of what, at least for a time, I don't know about now, being uh, in the CIA was about you know for for people like jack ryan and other people it's like people uh, people of that, that plan these operations and marco ramius kind of has the same mindset where it's like you need to think of every potential complication and have a solution to it and um i don't know that howard hughes thing was just sort of the cherry on top that they're yeah, like that's cool. we need a company I, I, this has this has to be a, a clive cussler adaptation like that all of the 
the detail in that sounds perfect for that. I mean, it's pretty fascinating. I think it's a pretty cool uh, story. Um, also, I I wanted to do my due diligence because I feel felt remiss in my book report. Uh, it was in uh, no- November 9th, nineteen seventy five, when the mutiny took place. So, like a year after what you're saying, that salvage operation was. Russia had some bad luck around that time. They lost the sub. America got the sub. This guy runs a mutiny. Well, you know, I feel like. Maybe Clive Cussler researched this, learned about it. I mean, he was interested in the works of Alistair MacLean. Like he didn't, he had an interest in obviously in like naval warfare to begin with, but just at the time, I want. I think you know, this would be an interesting thing to talk to an older person about. It's like were people just more interested in submarines back then? You know, <laughs> like it seems like that might be the case. Like people don't really, people don't really get too like jazzed about submarines and shit like this anymore this the cold war is over so it's like no one cares you know like just i think people were into it back then just think about all the submarine movies that came out around like the 80s and 90s uh or even before that like i think there's a lot of world war ii submarine movies yeah or not i don't know if there's a lot but there's you know some pretty iconic ones run silent run deep i want to find i want to find a world war one submarine movie i'm sure they're out there but i think uh the world war one submarine stuff is more interesting to me in that like they didn't have radar they had to do everything by sight or by mathematical calculation uh and so like you had to periscope to see your target and then you had to like do a bunch of math calculations to know where to fire your torpedo to hit it quick math Uh, math quick yeah exactly Um, they're closing on us compute harder yeah Uh, I I don't know it's just it's interesting like uh, I've I've said it before and I will not stop talking about it but uh, Dead Wake by Eric Larson yeah uh, like a a big chunk of that book is from the point of view of the uh, German submarine and it's really interesting to like what the life of a German submarine was like and like how how they operate. I've I've said it before, so I'm not gonna like repeat myself sure. too much. But good good book, everyone read it. Dead Wake, Eric Larson. Some someday we should do an Eric Larson book on the podcast. Yeah, sure. I, I I'm into it. I I, I feel like those are a hundred percent dad lit. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I gr- I agree because I can my image of dad lit like in my house when i was growing up my there was like a wicker basket i think it was like a magazine basket you know those things they put next to couches oh, I know. Yep, yep. and it had like books my dad's books that he'd read in it and i i remember seeing um murder in the white city in there so devil in the white city devil in the white city excuse me yep. so it's like i think that that's counts. a really good one yeah we could we could we could definitely do that one on the podcast or the one that's about the Marconi device. That one I haven't read yet. That might be cool to do. Yeah, I, I've I've read a lot of Dadlit. Like I tore through some Dadlit the past month, and I've got more Dadlit on the horizon. I'm definitely on like a Liam Devlin kick. I'm gonna read another Liam Devlin book. Dude, you read faster than anyone I know. Uh, save this one guy that used to come into my kava bar, that like inhaled books. He was this biker. There was a bunch of bikers that would come into that cob bar. It was really cool. Like it felt like a biker bar, but for the weirdest beverage. 
Um, I don't think I read fast like, though. But they were all like on. really chill, chill people too. And he was really into science fiction, and like he'd read like six hundred or something books on his like Kindle. Wow. And uh, anytime I had anything to talk about, he would have like three other recommendations that I'd never heard of before. And was just a very well-read guy, but he cl- he cleaned through so many. Like he would clean multiple books in a week, and keep going. It was ridiculous. I don't know where he found the time to do that. I don't know where you find the time to do that. I I was gonna say I don't read. I don't think I read that fast, but I read often. Like I try and read every day at least a little bit. Well, and that's that's exactly what it is. Is like I my weeks. Three days, three days of my week are generally sword fighting. The two two days of my week are sometimes like uh, tabletop gaming, and like I do writing for that. So like a lot of my free time at like work that could be used reading is spent writing or like researching. So like if if I wanted to cut out most of my hobbies, I could probably keep up with you. But yeah. I, just, yeah. I, I've, I've got more, I've diversified my interests. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I don't really have a very diverse interests. I just books and, but like I do read, uh, I try and read a variety of, I, I can't say I read a variety of genres, but I don't just read that. You kind of do. I was gonna say you do read a, a pretty big variety though. You jump around quite a bit. I, the last full book I finished was this, um, it's a, I guess it's a media tie-in, is what you'd call it, of The Crow, written by this guy I really like, Chet Williamson. I read another book of his. He wrote another media tie-in for Psycho, the Robert Block and you know Alfred Hitchcock um, book and and movie. He wrote uh, like a sequel to Psycho. Media. When you say media tie-in, are you talking about like a novelization of the movie, or you saw talk about something that's more like documentary type? No, I, so it's not a novelization because it's not based on the story and, and from make, the movie. Well, it's not. I, when you say novelization, I think an adaptation of the movie into a book. Correct. But this is it's this is more like another story. It's like an like yeah. a yeah yeah a, a spinoff, um, but spinoff to me kind of also implies that it's like a different character that's taking it or, or it's a different. Not always, not always, but that's that's interesting. So they, it's basically like a sequel to the movie, right. but in book form. He wrote this actually. It's kind of there are elements of Dadlit in it. Spoiler alert for this, but in Psycho Sanitarium, it it, it um, features Norman Bates in this sanitarium. And all these other people that are in there with him and there's kind of like murders going on and it ends up being like there's some uh, like a a Nazi doctor like he's this concentration camp doctor has basically escaped into the United States and is running the sanitarium. So kind of no. see that's pure fiction in real life. The hospital would have hired him legitimately from the government and he'd be working there officially. I know. I know. There's I mean, (laughs) yeah, there's. The more I, I learn about, like, espionage and post-World War II Europe, it's like, and, like, mercenaries in the history of of, uh, of Europe and, and Africa, too, it's like, Nazis, they had a future after, you know, like... Yeah, they got passed around. Highly, highly capable fascists and highly capable SS men, like, were sought after and employed for their experiences and their skills. Um, but anyways, the crow I finished 
very it, it reminded me i had to think of jack reacher a lot because we did that that episode about uh the white supremacist militia and yeah, this yeah. crow book came out in 1998 i think and it's definitely like heavily influenced by the oklahoma city bombing it's basically about this lady who she she comes back you know she's the the crow figure in this because of this um white supremacist militia uh blows up this uh daycare center that she owns and like that's she needs she she takes revenge on the um white supremacist community which includes like a uh, people at a gun show it includes a rush limbaugh type character and it, re- in, and it in, oh. you have this in you have this in physical copy i do want me to send it to you absolutely all right i'll send that's it that's what i was gonna say anyways <laughs> next next time you get uh next time you get a, a collection together to send me definitely include that all right i'll we'll do all right so do you want to play a game yes but only if you also want to play a game because yes. i have one for you as well okay all right this is a game you go first it's though. called techno babble and uh, it okay. is it these are it's based on the hunt for red october what i'm going to do is give you uh acronyms because the hunt for red october is filled with these techno acronyms um Uh i'm also going to mix in some trivia questions but you have to tell me what the acronyms stand for okay okay all right s-a-r sar um if we did this closer closer to when you actually read the book yeah it'd be easier in my mind but i would still fail this miserably hold on um oh god i don't know search Um, and rescue oh god damn it that's so obvious okay here's another one asw they use that a lot in uh um hunt for october shoe warehouse it's a shoe warehouse (laughs) yeah i'm pretty sure that's a shoe store it's a shoe Um, it's a shoe store in deerfield (laughs) ASW Shoe Warehouse, I think so. Anyways, uh, hold on. ASW. I feel like you should have done multiple choice for these. Uh, There are some other... Okay. Do you want me to give you a hint? Yes. The W stands for Warfare. That's not a hint. You're just giving me a part of it. All right, hold on. Okay. All right, time is up. Allied Soviet Warfare. Anti-submarine Warfare. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, here's another one. Com sublant. Com sublant? Com sublant. One word. C O M S U B L A N T. I mean communications submarine No? It isn't communications? Commander Submarine Force Atlantic. Oh, sure. Okay. They use that a lot in that. The Hunt for October. What's funny is I was going to joke around about it being Atlanta, and that's closer than I than I would have thought. Okay, you're definitely not going to get this one, though. But they this is probably – they use this um, in uh, Hunt for October as well. F-L-I-R, FLIR. Oh, yeah. No, I, that is the um, – it's like their uh, detection software. Yes, you're, that's good. Forward-looking infrared yeah okay okay now i'm just gonna do some trivia so this would be a little bit easier okay i'm gonna bow stern port starboard which directions on a ship do those refer to bow is forward port is left starboard is right and stern is rear right perfect okay you know how i remember that how do you do it 
port and left both have four letters in them. I remember it because there used to be this really, I used to work at a liquor store in Florida and this guy was a raging alcoholic. He was a lawyer. He would come in and buy like 12 minis and drink them in his BMW and like puke in his, like, like at the side of his car. But he Lovely. he was like a really big reader, and he was always asking me what I was reading. He was, but he like he'd come in like cross-eyed, drunk, and kind of like stumble around. But um, he said you can remember port because on the ship when there's nothing when there's nothing left, you drink the port. Nothing left. Drink ah. the port. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Multiple choice. Ballistic submarines are sometimes referred to as a alphas b boomers c victors uh, is this a true or false you said it's multiple choice oh. <laughs> Wait. I, I just gave you a b and c and you asked me if it was say true it or again. false say it again say it again say it again ballistic sub- i thought that was just a statement <laughs> ballistic ballistic submarines are sometimes referred to boomers as boomers is correct boomers yeah yeah okay the, the, the ones that uh, hunt them, the one that's like a, 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 a submarine that hunts other vehicles, is an alpha. An attack submarine. Yeah. Okay. Blank refers to the noise created by air bubbles collapsing on a moving propeller. Cavitation. Correct. I was going to do multiple choice, but you got it. Cavitation yeah. is the sound produced by the motion of turning propellers. It's uh, when uh, partial vacuums, uh, I don't know. Yeah, whatever. Fuck it. You you get it. Good job. <laughs> Golly, Mister Wizard. <laughs> okay. The loudest noise from normal from normal ship operation comes from the cavitation of the propeller. Is this true or false? This one's That's true. true. No, it's true. That's just a little factoid. Oh, okay. I thought well, again you said it in like the form of a statement. And I thought you were waiting for my response. Okay. <laughs> Distinctive propeller blade broadband cavitation noise can render a submarine detectable by passive sonar systems. Is this also just a fact? This isn't a question. That's correct. True. Okay. <laughs> True. You, every time you read one of these, you look at me like you're expecting an answer. Generally, the level of noise from a ship increases with ship size and speed. Tick tock, Mr. Ludwig. True? That's correct. Okay. And it was not a question. <laughs> None of these... Well. None of these last three or four have. You've just been throwing facts at me. Okay. End of that's end, the end of my game. What do you got for me? Okay. So, mine is multiple choice. Connor. How many times have submarines fought each other while submerged? A, too many times to count. B, just four times. C, just once. Or D, never. Um, I am going to guess on this because I don't know, but I'm going to say D never. The answer is C just once. Just once. What do you, what's the story? Once in history. So it, on, in February, 1945 in a Norwegian sea near Bergen, the British submarine HMS Venturer, uh, picked up something on their sonar, uh, a, a German sub U-864 was transporting supplies to Japan when they encountered some sort of mechanical issue and their engine was making a knocking sound. 
they decided to turn around and return to port for repairs, but they didn't realize that the sound was so severe that it was giving away their position. The venturer picked up the sound and identified it as engine noise and followed them. They sighted the periscope of U-864 and uh, gave chase for an hour. During that time, they calculated their pattern of movement and were they then launched an attack. They launched four torpedoes, one hit, and it was enough to rupture the submarine and sink it. And that's the only recorded time in history of submarines Good show, lads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was interesting, though, that, like, as many times as we see it in movies, that it's only really happened once. It happened. Every other time... <laughs> Every other other time, it's been submarines shooting on, like, ships or shooting on each other while on the surface. It happens twice in the Hunt for Red October, right? Like, there's, like, technically two submarine yeah. battles. Yeah. Yep. Oh. Just crazy that that's... I actually... Uh, a friend of the podcast informed me about that story, and I was like, I have to bring this up. This is so interesting. Okay. What's the next question? No, that's it. Uh, oh. That was the my short little game of, of history. Oh, okay. All right. Well, what you reading, Chris? What's on the What's on your bedside table these days? Uh, I am reading a horror story by um, a friend, a friend of a friend, a partner of a friend. Anyways, it's called Dark Heart of Illamore. This is, this is it. Free cover. It's really short. Uh, doing it for a book club i'm excited to to get through that and then i'm also i've started moby dick this is research for a story that i'm writing but uh i'm not excited about doing the research <laughs> but uh, for, i for i decided to rewrite moby dick or do a homage to moby dick uh because of all of the reading you and i've been doing about soviets uh and because of a piece of art that was uh shared between us i decided to rewrite moby dick as if it was a soviet ship captain obsessed with hunting down a ufo that's spotted in the like north sea and it's all from the point of view of the political officer who is trying to stop him or report him that's interesting madness the theme of madness mm -hmm. and obsession yeah, I just thought putting it in the, the harsh conditions of the Arctic would make it even more interesting. Mm -hmm. Push the crew to their breaking point. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, those are the things I'm reading right now. Uh, Moby Dick and Dark Heart of Ilmore. How about you? I am reading this book by Max Allen Collins. Um, it, and he just finished it. He reads so fast, folks. No, it's, no. Um, <laughs> it's, it's book one of this series, the Nate Heller series. And it's called True Detective, and it's about a um, detective in 1932 Chicago during Prohibition. And he, in this book, he is starting off making his own private investigation uh, detective agency. And it's pretty darn good. I'm only like a third of the way into it, but it's just highly readable, highly entertaining. And the, the detective character is like, in some ways, you're kind of... Well, I don't know. Like, you know, it's it's Chicago, it's Prohibition. You can probably guess what a little bit of it's about. But the detective character surprises me in many ways. He's like very, his hangups are unique and he's pretty virtuous, even though he's like, no, I'm a Chicago cop. Like, 
um, everyone's on the take in Chicago. Like he's not perfect. He's not, you know, um, a boy scout. He has some surprising revelations and surprising uh, qualities. Um, it's a really good book so far. Frank Nitty is a character. Frank Nitty was uh, like the second in command under Al Capone. It kind of reminds me a bit more of like a James Elroy book in that it is like there's a lot of historical detail and it is it has like um, uh, Anton Chermak is a character. He was a, a mayor of Chicago and like uh, this guy Dawes who was a vice president actually I think under Calvin Coolidge is a character. So like you have a lot of politicians and real life people in it, but it's pretty darn good. And I'd like to talk about it on the podcast in the near future. No, that'd be great. Uh, yeah. yeah. I could see myself really enjoying this series. I th- I mean, if you want to talk noir, I'm the guy to talk to. I'd love to discuss that on the podcast. I just actually got done reading a noir book, uh, over, yeah, over new year's, uh, while I was working on a crafting project, I listened to devil in the blue devil in a blue dress by Walter Mosley. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, the first book in the easy Rollins series. Uh, it's really good, uh, as a, um, a black protagonist who is, uh, brought, uh, basically as a regular at a bar and the bartender gives him a lead on a job that could make him some money. And he's very skeptical of it and goes to meet this gentleman. And the gentleman basically just wants him to find a woman, like a specific woman. And it's basically just, I will pay you to look for her, not even to find her. But if you show me that you've put effort in to look for her, uh, you can keep the money. Um, and you can keep, I'll give you more of it if you even find her. And things don't go as planned and it, there's a whole mystery that unra- un, like unravels and I guess from that uh, from that experience he goes on the character of Easy Rollins goes on to like start a detective agency so like the future books are all like him trying to be a detective which sounds interesting so I'll probably yeah. read more in that series yeah I've heard of Walter Mosley I've never read a book by him he's one of those big authors I've never you know touched um I really liked it a lot. Um, I, I don't know if I liked it. I think I still prefer Raymond Chandler, but this one was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm going to read some Eric Ambler in the near future. He's one spy author I want to bring to the podcast as well. Um, he is more like his books are more kind of like they kind of sometimes remind me of Agatha Christie a little bit. They're more like a bit of mysteries. They're not like Ooh, Lacare. I kind of want to read that. They're not like Lacare spy novels or Clancy, you know, esque. They're more smaller casts and like people getting drawn. Tell me which one. Tell me which one you pick, and I'll read one with you. Okay, I'll pick one out. Um, I, one I really enjoyed is Epitaph for a Spy. Um, is that the one you want me to read, or are you going to pick a different? No, because I don't think that's a great. It, no, I, there, I'll pick a different one. Okay, but epitaph. Yeah, pick a different one. Let me okay, spoiler alert. Epitaph for no, a spy. Sp- what? Right. What is the epitaph for a spy? Uh, died serving his country. No. <laughs> Here lies John Doe. No epitaph for a spy. He did it for the money. Connor, I want you to put that on my gravestone when I die. He did it for the money. <laughs> yep. Which I like. I All think. Right. I think that's something that. W- I'd like to kind of put a book a bookmark on or like put a pin in because we talk a lot about so far about like espionage 
and we talked about it, defectors and the reasons people do these things and they're not usually what you think like people think spies might be high-minded people like they're patriots you know but we find instances where it's it like in john le carre there's a mole and he's like it's an aesthetic decision as much as anything else like i don't really care you know like we just find these very peculiar characters in espionage fiction who are well even the even the ideological ones uh, turn easy uh, the character of like Alec Trevelyan mm-hmm. for England, James. Yeah. Well, I wanted to read this biography of, or an autobiography of this guy, Kim Philby, who's this famous um, mole in uh, uh, MI6 um, or is it MI5? I always get it mixed up, but uh, apparently his autobiography is like, people are like, it's not that great because he's not, he doesn't reveal a whole lot about like, I don't know. I was I was hoping the autobiography might be a glimpse into the mind of someone who betrays their own country and why. But apparently, the book, from based upon the reviews I read, they're like yeah, it doesn't really get into that too much. I'm like, oh, then I don't care. I don't want to read some fucking British guy's autobiography, please. I don't know how willing some people will be to be honest about that kind of stuff, like especially if it's an autobiography. Well, I think you'll have to find some someone who else tells the story, you know, just a regular biography to get come up some of that kind of stuff. Or I, I have to get my hands on some of Jack Ryan's like CIA reading that he puts in his overnight bag that seems like super yeah, yeah, interesting, yeah. you know, like like suicide rates amongst defectors, you know, and like psychological profiles of uh, you know. Okay, so well then what you need to do is what Tom Clancy did and go into the like naval academy libraries and find uh, esoteric essays that students wrote on the subject matter. Mm-hmm. I need to start reading people's dissertations. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's about as interesting as what you read for work. Me? What I read for work? Yeah, it's about as interesting as what you read for work. I've been reading. We're not going to go yeah, into yeah, it. Yeah, We're not yeah, going to yeah, go yeah, into yeah. this. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyways, that, I think this was a, a really interesting discussion. Yeah. Uh, but between the, the the two books that I read and the stuff about submarines, I think that what what's kind of neat is that Tom Clancy took this story of this this very interesting and in some ways remarkable, but not intellectually remarkable, uh, individual. And and he, I, I don't know about that. I think Sablin was book smart. He just had no street smarts because he he was well read about politics and well read on. Um, he read all the like poets at the time and all the like politicians that he like idolized. He just didn't know anything about how to like pull off anything and how to be like cunning. Well, I guess so. Okay. So maybe, maybe my characterization was unfair, but I guess what I mean is that he substituted Marco, Marco Ramius, who is a very cunning, intelligent, you know, person. And he kind of, as a dad lit author, he he is basing it on history on a real person but he's definitely bringing in this like hyper competency into into a real life situation and in the real life situation the hyper competency was lacking you know what's interesting that we overlooked that you just brought up what is that when we went through our dadlet checklists we we applied hyper competent male protagonist to jack ryan Mm -hmm. and we should have been applying it to marco ramius yeah yeah you know what he's the hyper competent male protagonist in that story yeah i get i mean 
R- really, yeah. I, I get... except, he t- except he can't take off his shoes quietly. <laughs> I guess it just depends because, you know, because it is Tom Clancy and it's the, the Americans are, are, well, I wouldn't say the Americans are all the good guys. It's not really that simple. But Jack Ryan is the clear kind of main character of it, you know, so it's it's easier to look at Ryan. But Ramius is, yeah, definitely, definitely has that hyper confidence to him. All right. So um, I think. Uh, Dad, you later. Oh, no, don't do it yet. Uh, I, I, so, so, Connor, I, I think coming up uh, in, in this new year, happy, happy new year, everybody, happy by new the way. Year. I think we should do a scattershot next week for our anniversary yeah we are coming up on that yeah yeah i think that would be fun we'll, we'll come up with some fun topics we'll come up with some fun discussion do just a, a little short episode to commemorate the podcast yeah absolutely absolutely we'll have to brainstorm until then until then, dad you later uh if anyone has uh, stop you do you're jumping the gun <laughs> i know you're trying to get out got one over on me so that i don't get to say it but uh, you, you're, you're skipping some steps here. I'll have to be the diligent one. Uh, if you guys want to recommend us any sort of topics for our uh, anniversary episode, you can send us suggestions uh, either on our email at dadlitpodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram at dadlitpodcast. That's right. Um, DM us. Let us know what's yeah, up. Slip into our DMs like a Soviet submarine. Uh, like a Soviet submarine returning to its home berth after a long voyage out at sea. Nope, too late. You got shot down Dad by you a later. sub. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs>
Dad, you later. Uh, if anyone has... Uh, stop! Get out of here. Just don't ask questions.